Hi everyone. I want to welcome a friend who I first met back in 2018. And then we met a few times after that, but never really ended up at the same place at the same time until most recently. I always was so impressed with him and the way he carried himself, his confidence, and I feel like I always followed his career. So I'd like reach out to him and, you know, when we spoke, we really chatted about roles, job opportunities, and that's literally the only reason we would talk. So most recently, he slid into my LinkedIn DMs and I was like, you know what? Here's my number. Let's chat. And here we are today. We got lunch and we really bonded over our upbringing and our own experiences in corporate America and how we got to where we are today. So obviously I had him on the podcast and I got to learn where his resilience and his strong will came from. So I'm so excited for you guys to listen to his story. This is Oliver. I'm Oliver and I was born in Santo Domingo, the Dominican Republic. And I moved to the US, uh, specifically New York City, when I was 10 years old. So I've been in New York for uh, over 20 years now. And I guess I'm technically not first generation because I wasn't born here. Uh, but I think our experiences might be similar in some, in some ways. Uh, and so, yeah, my parents are both from the Dominican Republic, uh, but you know, my parents are divorced. We, uh, my mom and I uh, and my sister moved here uh, looking for the, the American dream, I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> for better opportunities, the typical immigrant story. Yep. And I know that, I know it's first gen friends, but I do feel that when you come here so young in your life, you basically almost like inherit, you know, the first generation because basically we're raised here, right? Yeah, that's right. And so when you were in Dominican Republic and you came over, did you come with both your parents? Uh, only with my mom uh, and, and my sister. So my, uh, my dad, parents were divorced uh, by the time we, we moved to the U.S., uh, we lived in Manhattan, in, in uptown Manhattan, Washington Heights, you know, the Dominican Mecca of New York. Uh, so uh, that, that I definitely felt like my culture was here. I did not feel distanced from it. Um, I was very in tune with Dominican culture. You know, I, I grew up there. I went to school there. My first language was Spanish. Um, up until 10 years old, I lived there. So I felt very much Dominican, right? Um, but then we moved to the Bronx after that. So we spent about a year in the Heights and then moved to, to the South Bronx, um, around Yankee Stadium area, pretty rough neighborhood, <laughs> but I still felt very much, uh, in the culture because it's still predominantly Dominican, you know, um, it's a neighborhood that's, uh, dominated by people of color in general, right? Uh, even though I was in a neighborhood that, you know, most of my friends were either Dominican or Black or other Hispanics, I never really felt like I belonged because um, I was a bit, you know, a bit nerdy. And, I, and I, that's not necessarily a negative thing, for sure. <laughs> I was a little bit nerdy. I wasn't the popular kid. I really was interested in learning. And unfortunately, a lot of my peers, you know, I went to really rough schools. They were not so interested in learning. So I, I, I wasn't doing what my peers were doing. So I was mostly home alone uh, for a lot of my time, uh, you know, as a, as a kid, uh, playing video games and, you know, not really, uh, you know, not out on the streets like most of my friends were because they were dangerous. Uh, yeah. so I never really felt like I belonged. And uh, even within Dominican culture itself, 
I never felt like I I belonged because I was a little bit lighter skin. And, you know, of course, Dominicans were very diverse, like most um, Hispanics or, or Latino people. Um, but I was always seen a little bit different uh, in the Dominican Republic and in New York City by my Dominican peers. Uh, so there's a lot of layers there of, of, of what belonging means to me. And I think that sometimes feels isolating because you're like, wait, I don't want to play like with the other kids. Like, I just want to I want to get lost in this Harry Potter book or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, it, you know, just for you know, even more context, when I was growing up in the Dominican Republic, um, I grew up uh, for a very long time with my grandparents. Uh, when my, you know, my mom kind of remarried and she was living with her new husband and had my sister. Uh, and I, I grew up with my grandparents for a, a very long time. And my grandfather had the entire Encyclopedia Britannica collection. I don't remember which edition I was, I was like, you know, <laughs> but I was seven or, you know, six or seven years old. Uh, reading through these huge books, uh, you know, very old and dusty. But I was really interested in, in learning, like you said, about history and geography and like, you know, memorizing, you know, country capitals and, and country flags and all these things that were really weird and unusual. And uh, for such a young child, uh, was very, it didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of influences of people who were uh, you know, telling me that these things were important or their learning was important necessarily. You know, my mom didn't go to college, you know, um, and so I didn't really have a lot of that influence. But I was that kid that was interested in learning and, and you know, being in, uh, in the Bronx in particular, it was really hard to be that kid because, I, again, most of my friends were, you know, into sports and uh, although friends, I say loosely, right? <laughs> most of my acquaintances <laughs> or my peers, they were into sports and they were the cool kids and, you know, they were wearing the latest gear and, you know, I grew up very poor. My mom, you know, was, supported us on food stamps and, and she was a single mom for a long time. So I just never was the cool kid. And the things that I valued were really not valued by my, uh, you know, my environment. Were you reading the encyclopedia in Spanish? It was in Spanish. Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> I'm even more impressed right now. I was like, wait a minute. You were seven. You only spoke Spanish and you're reading the, these books. That's insane. Yeah. This, the, 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 the full story of that is I was upstairs and my grandfather had, had a, a sec, like a second story in their house. And I was uh, I spent a lot of time in that room where my grandfather had the encyclopedias. But there was also a, an old radio there and I had cassettes, you know, very old. Uh, and I was You're aging yourself. Yes, I'm, yeah, <laughs> not, not twenty anymore. And I was listening to Selena and like all these Mexican divas. Oh, like, that was I my love, life. Love her. <laughs> yeah, so I was pretty gay, you know, growing up. Nobody knew. <laughs> um, but that was like me, you know. I had this alone time, and I was being introspective, listening to music, reading encyclopedias. Like, what seven-year-old kid is doing that? Maybe some, but. <laughs> Not. <laughs> no, it's not heard of. Everyone's yeah. on like on the internet scrolling and like well, these watching things, yeah. YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. It's true. That is really cool, Oliver. I did I obviously had no idea. And then you came to America and you were, you know, I'm assuming you didn't speak the language, right? No, I did ESL for one year. So I was in fifth grade. When I went when I came to the US, I started in fifth grade, which was appropriate. I, I had done fourth grade in the Dominican Republic. But I was in ESL for one year. And I had this amazing teacher uh, in, in my you know, first experience in the U.S. I had been to the U.S. before uh, just to visit, but never really to live. 
Uh, but this teacher uh, was Dominican. Uh, Miss Febrige was her last name, like a French last name, but she was Dominican. Yeah, and she was amazing, <laughs> like very encouraging and really passionate. And she gave me an atlas of the U.S. because uh, she knew that I, I liked geography. And then that was just like, you know, uh, really accelerated my interest in, you know, to continue to learn and learn about yeah. the U.S. in particular. But yes, I did ESL for a year and then I uh, went into kind of regular lessons after that. Wow. Wow. That's really amazing. I'm like, your mom must be so proud of you. Uh, She is. (laughs) (laughs) I just just realized what I said. And I was like, no, actually, that probably wasn't even enough for our Latin mothers. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's proud. And you know, it's it's... she's like, why are you the president of the United States, Oliver? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I could really only be president of the Dominican Republic. uh, And I would probably get shot the first time I'm in (laughs) office because I'd want to get rid of the corruption. And all these things, but yeah, that's a yeah. funny story. <laughs> For another time. Yes. I feel like you're, when you were in America, like a part of you was motivated by the American dream. You know, the concept of the American dream is not something that I really thought about when I moved here and, uh, you know, when I was growing up here as a kid and then eventually as a teenager. Uh, when I started, I think maybe towards my, my kind of 15 years old around there, that I started to learn more about the world and uh, get more into politics and, and those kinds of things. I became very cynical and <laughs> I don't, I didn't really believe that there was an American dream or that it was attainable uh, for a number of reasons, um, which is, I think that sounds like a, like a horrible thing, right? But everybody has their own version of it, I know. Um, yeah, I'm interested to know what, what your definition of it was that you thought it was like not realistic. I just think there's a lot of inequality in this country. Mm-hmm. And, the American dream is often used as a way to give people hope and make people complacent um, yeah. and maybe, you know, have people lose their political efficacy uh, or not even realize their power politically. Because when you want to change things, uh, you know, that's not necessarily beneficial to, uh, to the status quo. Right. Right. And with the American dream, you can say, well, you know, don't tax the billionaires because I might be one, too, someday. Right. That kind of mentality I started to see uh, very early on, you know, as I, you know, during my yeah. after my sometime in the U.S. And I after you finished cynical. reading all the encyclopedias. <laughs> yes. I finished all of the volumes. And then I, <laughs> and you're I, like, I, it's not real. That was my conclusion. Uh, but yeah, I was kind of cynical. So for me, the American dream really wasn't tied to material things. And, you know, it's fair that it may be for some people. And I think that that's very much American culture. It was more about the more knowledge I gain and the more independence I have financially uh, and as a human. Uh, for me, that was what I would consider my dream or, you know, my idea of success. I, I think that's very important to be able to identify and I, we spoke about this in my last podcast with my friend Sophia. The first time that I really heard about the American dream was in school. It was from the textbooks. That's where we learned it from, mm-hmm. you know? And then when you start talking about it, there are different versions of it, you know, the first generation or to our families and what they think the American dream is. Owning a house or owning a business or just having hot water. You know, <laughs> like everyone has their own version of it. Yeah, it's true. Or going to college, you know, for, for many people too. And, and what was your what was your dream? My American dream was having a house, mm-hmm. having children, being married and 
like having a nine to five job. <laughs> Isn't that so fucking sad? Well, I mean, you know, it speaks to maybe a desire for stability and, you know, to be rooted somewhere. I think that's that's fair. And yeah. Valid. No, you're right. I think it was it was stability for sure because I didn't have that growing up. There was no stability. Like I was like, are we poor? Like, are we going to get evicted? Do I have a right to school? Like, can we get gas? Like, those are all the things that as a child I was worried about and I was aware of, right? Like, today, mm-hmm. kids who have parents who, you know, double income homes, they never think about that shit. They have no idea. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I was like, wait, how am I going to college? How am I, how do I start my life? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why I started working the second I turned 13 or 14 or whatever it was, because I realized my parents can't do, you know, they can't support me after this. Like I need to figure mm-hmm. it out. Yeah, and you did it yourself, right? You, yeah. you know, you probably had support along the way, but ultimately you were um, in control of your destiny, which I think is a very powerful idea as well. Yeah. And I also got to choose people in my life that were aspirational to me. Mm-hmm. You know, which goes back to what you were saying when you were younger. You didn't have people who were inspiring. If anything, they were the complete opposite and you weren't motivated by them. So you went into your own little world. It's true. And, you know, I, I did mention one of my teachers before as being kind of an inspirational force. And there yeah. were other teachers. So I have to say, coming to, to the U.S., uh, the teachers that I had were the biggest uh, inspiration to me. Of course, my mom is always like, you know. She also sure. wants me to, you know, she, she values education, even though she doesn't have an education. And she, but, you know, she wasn't um, at school every day with me. But my teachers really were um, life changing. Right. And that's very cliche to say, but it's so true. And there are not just but you're one or so two, lucky. A handful of them. Yeah. You're so lucky because I don't think that's the case everywhere. Yeah. But the ones that make an impact, like they make an impact. And I think I had a handful of those as well growing up. And I'm so happy to hear that you did too. Yeah, even in, in the worst, you know, some of the worst underfunded schools in, in the Bronx, right? Mm-hmm. I went to a really bad school. My high school was like, you know, uh, metal detectors, bars in the in the windows. But the teachers that I had there were just so committed and so passionate. And I think that that's kind of getting lost these days. I, I don't think that we're incentivizing teachers to go into the profession as much, or at least teachers who actually care about it uh, and want to make a difference. But that's another topic. <laughs> but I do have to say, like, I, I'm I know for that. I know it really it makes me really sad when I hear just like how underpaid and underappreciated they are because they are literally the ones that are saving these kids lives right and changing the future in a way that very few people can say they are and these kids in these homes or in these areas that you're talking about like their homes are fucked up Mm -hmm. so going to school is their escape and if they're going to school and they're also not being supported it's almost a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. You know, it, you find in, in those neighborhoods, like the one that I grew up in, uh, there's a lot of poverty, of course, and people are uh, living very precarious lives, whether it's because it's danger, it's dangerous to live there, or they don't have enough food, or their family lives are, are unstable. So, you know, I definitely was, uh, you know, facing poverty, and my family was, but I had a lot of support and love from my mom. Uh, there were kids that may not have had that even, right? So the teachers were uh, you know, could have been filling that gap. And hopefully yeah. for many, they did. I do appreciate and I am very thankful for those teachers that mm-hmm. 
work their ass off, even though they're, you know, not treated the way they should be treated. Absolutely. When you think about everything that you've been through in your life and the way you grew up and the community that you had and the friends or lack thereof friends that you had who inspired you, do you ever stop and think, well, I can't believe this is my life. Like I've made it. I guess uh, I'll tell you there's, there are two instances and they're both kind of career related. Right. And, you know, um, they're, kind of financial successes in a way because that really meant a lot to me because I came from, you know, not a lot of financial, uh, you know, resources, right? So uh, I used to work, I worked in retail, like in luxury retail for a very long time when I was in high school and then uh, through college, um, really full-time. And uh, when I was working in my last retail job, I found out that someone was making uh, a hell of a lot more money than I was, like more than twice as much money as I was making. And we were doing the same job and I was delivering more results, like better results than that person, right? And I told the the company's like HR and talked to the, you know, chief operating officer of the company. I was like a small, you know, regional luxury brand. And and negotiated to, uh, you know, more than double my, my, my salary, right? So that was like a kind of a big deal because it was such a difference in pay that it was life-changing for me at that time. And we're not talking about a lot of money here. So, but it was still yeah. so significant. I was like, oh my God, like, wow. <laughs> but then a year later, I get my first corporate job, right? And then of course my pay goes way higher than that. So that, those two moments were moments when I realized that oh yeah, I do have a voice and I should advocate for myself and negotiate. And, you know, um, sh- when I show value, make, make sure that that's recognized and, um, you know, and compensated the right way. So I'm really passionate actually about career and negotiating and empowering people, uh, you know, in the workplace because I went through that. It's kind of superficial, but finally no. they made a huge difference. Like, I'm, you know, I, I was at one point didn't have enough money to even buy a metro card or uh, even buy food. So I had like a colleague at my retail job once buy me lunch and I cried in the, in the, in the break room. And so that was like, you know, it was that bad. Right. Wow. So those, those moments really did mean a lot to me. Yeah. And those moments are what make you appreciate where you are now. Yeah, for sure. Where we can order all the tacos at Tacombi and, a drink if we wanted to. <laughs> yes. And order way too many things on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, we're, you know, I feel very privileged, right, in many ways now, even though I came from a place of uh, scarcity, only from, from a financial perspective, not from a loving household and, you know, support from my mom. But uh, I, I feel very privileged because a lot of my, my peers who were at school with me in the Bronx are still stuck in that life. And yeah. I'm still working the minimum wage jobs. Yeah. And it's sometimes heartbreaking. And even you make you feel a little guilty sometimes. At least I do sometimes, you know, because like, why did, didn't they succeed? Why was mm-hmm. I lucky? Right. Yeah. Cause you kept going, you kept pushing forward and you didn't give up. And I think a lot of the times people don't have that love and support to tell them to keep going. So they think their worth is where they're at, you know, whereas you, asked for more money you went for the higher paying jobs and even now Oliver like when you and I talked about like the salaries that we were negotiating you did not take anything lower than what you expected you know Mm -hmm. 
you know your worth. And I think that's so important. And unfortunately, people in our community who look like us, they don't always have people in their corner being like, you you can ask for more money. You should ask for more money. And there are times where my mom even, my mom has said to me, you better not ask for more money. They're going to fire you. Mm. Yep. I believe it. And I was like, then I'm going to go somewhere else. Because I was recently interviewing and that happened. I was like, well, they're offering me this, but I want this. And she was like, you, you sh- you're going to lose that job if you ask for more. And I was just like, no. Yeah. You know, I think unfortunately it's that complacency that um, a lot of people, particularly people of color or immigrants, you know, we have been kind of conditioned to be complacent and to not feel like we deserve more or that we are worthy of it. Uh, because inherently we are told <laughs> in, fr- from many sources that we are less than, that we yep. are not worthy. And it's really difficult when you start to believe it, right? Yeah. That's the yeah. problem. But if I had continued taking her advice, I would probably still live in my hometown too and mm. never left. We, you know, we talk about inequality and, you know, it, particularly, you know, between women of color, right? And uh, uh, it, it, if you're not, you, we're already starting out with significantly less wealth than uh, Americans who've been here a lot longer or who were born here or who you know, come from and you know, have educated parents who have careers dueling. Yeah, it's, it's generational wealth. I feel inspired. Now I'm going to go ask for more money. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should always do that. <laughs> Every month I'm like, can I have a raise now? The sky's the limit. <laughs> I'm just going to make you my negotiator of life. You want to know something funny, though? I'm a horrible negotiator in everything else in my life. I go into a, I, I used to, you know, have a car. I, I go into a dealership and I will pay the price that they want. Like, I'm really bad at it. Because <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm awkward and, like, I, I'm a little bit introverted and I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be intimidating. And it's just not authentically me. So, but when it comes to money and career, definitely. Like, I'm, yeah. You know, Oh, that's important. That's it. like you said before, it's life changing money. And yeah. I remember my first job, which is so funny to think now, because I was a waitress for 10 years and I was making $2 an hour. That was what I was getting paid hourly for 10 years. I was getting paid $2 an hour. And most of my money I made was from tips, which was mm-hmm. fine. And I would, you know, I made good money, but $2 an hour is crazy, it's crazy to think. Yeah. And then when I got my first job out of college, I was making 30K. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that was so much money. Right. I was like, oh, my God, I'm making 30K. For me, I remember just being like, wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how much I'm making. My little mind back then was like, oh, my God, this is so much money. And I would have never thought I would make what I make now because it was just like not like I couldn't comprehend that mm-hmm. was possible for me. Yeah, you know? I think a lot of that is true for, you know, um, you know, maybe people of color, uh, definitely in, in, in my family. I see that there's a lack of understanding of how these corporate jobs in particular, how they work and how you can make so much money. There's always like, like you know, su- surprise. When I told my mom what my salary was, she was like, what? That's that was <laughs> not even possible. And I think not knowing what is possible it prevents you from attaining it, right? So if exactly. you don't have information, that uh, insider information, it's, it's almost like understanding the college application system, right? If you don't have parents to help you navigate that or the resources to navigate that, how could you know that you are good enough to get into Harvard? How, you, know, you would never apply, right? There are all those things that I think uh, 
there needs to be more work done to drive, I would call it maybe, you know, literacy within these systems of power that we do not have as people of color or, or immigrant communities. Exactly. And you know who's going to have all that shit and hate us when we're up their ass about it? <laughs> Our children. <laughs> yes, they are. We're like, they're really like seventh grade. Like, did you start your college applications yet? Where's the FAFSA form? True. Yeah, they have, they have uh, so many resources and so much um, at, the, at their fingertips, really, that they're, you know, hopefully they use it uh, the right ways. When you see like Gen X today and specifically first gen Gen X, what are you most excited about for them and their future? I think it's exactly what we just touched on, which is that access to information resources that we just didn't have because of the Internet, because everything is digitized and uh, you know, information is so accessible. Uh, you don't, you no longer have to, you know, wait for the dial-up connection. You no longer have to go to the library. Uh, if they want, you know, without computers, you no longer have to go look at encyclopedias like I did, right? You have... Uh, but old... that builds character. <laughs> that builds character. It does build character and resiliency <laughs> for sure, and we need that. But, you know, these kids are growing up with so much information that my hope is that they learn how valuable and how powerful it can be and actually leverage it and, and use it for more than just TikTok videos, right? For more than just entertainment yeah. um, and use it to power their lives. And I think we're seeing that, right? People are making money online. They're finding avenues for you know, uh, revenue and, and income that uh, do not rely on the corporate structures, not directly, certainly indirectly they do, but yeah. we're seeing a lot of that going on. Um, hopefully you know, th this generation continues to use those resources and just to, you know, to value learning, right? Like, you know, go on Wikipedia and, and go on a Wikipedia hole and like, you know, start on one thing and end up in another, you know, spend three hours of your life. All those things are valuable. Just, just learn as much as, you, as much as you can. I think there's a little bit of taking it for granted too, right? It's so available. Yes. It's so there that in many it's cases, easy access like why would access. i why would i read a book if i could just read spark notes i don't yeah. know and people just read the headlines of articles that don't really look at nuance and detail which is uh definitely not a not a good thing it does remind me of uh what i saw when i moved to the u.s uh where you know going into u.s public schools you had free books right and free lunch you had but you had free books and that's something that is very unusual right that in a developing country like the dominican republic uh you know people in public schools there didn't really have a lot of books and you know it wasn't it wasn't so available that they have so much knowledge and resources so we take it for granted in this country right all the free books that we have um which are great and i think that we should you know continue to fund them and you know stop trying to remove books from school curriculums like a lot of the states are doing uh, absolutely but a lot of kids are not taking are taking it for granted and that's what i saw when i was growing up in the bronx when you think of your life now and where you are and all the amazing, incredible things that you've accomplished, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would, I would tell him, <laughs> I would tell my younger self uh, that being different is actually great. Uh, and to, you know, I felt, you know, lonely sometimes, right? You know, I wasn't like the other kids. I didn't have a lot of friends, um, but that's okay. Uh, being different and being authentically yourself is a lot more important than trying to fit in, which I also try to do many times uh, to, you know, to very little success. Uh, so I would say just be yourself, be authentic, super cliche, I know, but it's so true. Being authentically yourself uh, feels so good, you know, and I tell you this, not just as the unpopular kid in school, but also as, you know, uh, a gay man, right, who grew up for a long time being the opposite of authentic, right? 
uh, and once you are, uh, you are so much more empowered to advocate for yourself uh, because you value yourself more for who you really are. I wish more kids had that type of message to them versus what they're seeing online or, you know, the, maybe their parents who don't always give them that opportunity to. So I, I, I do really think you said it very well. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for joining me on this First Gen Friends podcast. I loved hearing more about all the wonderful things that you've done and how far you've come. I think it's super important. And I hope that you continue to be very successful. And I hope that you also continue to make impact in other people's lives. You've helped me a great deal in my career, even though it was indirectly. Um, But I really do appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And, and we, may ha- we may need a follow-up conversation to talk about some of those political issues that are we, um, you know, <laughs> we very do, controversial. We do. You know, when I was uh, 19, I left the U.S. and went to Italy for a year. I think I mentioned this to you. I decided that I wanted to live in Italy and become Italian and go to school there like any other Italian student would. And I went to the Italian embassy in D.C. Uh, and I applied to school there. And then I moved in the summer, in the summer or fall of 20, 2008, which is when the financial crisis started to happen, as you may remember. Um, okay. So like, it was really expensive to be there. The euro was very expensive. So I ended up being there for only a year. I had to come back. It's like, it was too expensive for my mom to support me there. Um, and I couldn't find full-time work. So that was a part of the story that I think kind of feeds into the idea of not belonging. Like I never really felt like I belonged here either. So I don't really know where I belong. <laughs> you belong felt, in Long Island City. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like I belonged. I belonged in Italy, right? That was the one really? in my life where I felt like I really belonged. Yeah, for sure. So oh, that's so cool. That's where where in Italy? In my future. I lived in Bologna in the north. Oh wow, that's amazing. Did you? Were you by yourself? Yeah, I was. I found, I found a roommate. A roommate on some website, but I, I knew no one. Oh my god, that's so awesome. It was like a very formative experience. And it was just a year, but that's probably like an awesome year of your life. It was the best year of my life. Uh, It should have been the rest of my life there. But unfortunately, because of financial circumstances, I had to come back. But, you know, I don't regret it because I still have, you know, have gone through so many opportunities here. And my life has changed in so many ways here, too, that, you know, everything worked out. Mm -hmm.